0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, over the weekend, the Ontario Liberal Party unveiled their new platform. What do we make about all the campaign promises? We'll talk about it. With gas prices continuing to climb and no sign of relief in sight, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on Premier Doug Ford to keep his 2018 election promise to lower gas prices. Jay Goldberg, the Interim Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, will join us to discuss. And a lot of people have found themselves doom-scrolling on social media for hours on end and they've decided to quit many platforms. We'll get into that as well. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I'm sure you've noticed the, the provincial election campaign is already underway. Now, I understand that the, the, the vote itself, uh, the provincial election, is not till next June. But if you've been watching TV, listening to the radio, or reading anything of any consequence over the last little while, you've already heard and seen political ads. They're all over the place right now. And uh, Doug Ford is campaigning. Andrea Horvath is campaigning. Stephen Del Duca is campaigning. Mike Schreiner is campaigning. All the party leaders have been out and about talking about what they would do if they become the next premier of this province of Ontario. Well, Stephen Del Duca is making a lot of noise uh, because there's some concern here on the Liberals' part about trying to get their back on their feet from a political standpoint. They pretty much got wiped out, of course, in the last provincial election. And Del Duca says he'd like to be the next premier, and he's offering some bold ideas. Uh, including, uh, uh, well, a pilot project, he says, to analyze the potential for a four-day work week. Um, Del Duca says it's already being studied in other parts of the world and should be looked at here in Ontario. I love
1: research and I love getting the facts before especially government makes big decisions. That's why I'm proposing a pilot. I think we we have so much talent here in this province and there are so many different potential ways this could work. That's why we want to take a look at it. I want the evidence. I want the facts. I want the analysis. And then we'll make a responsible decision about how
0: to go forward. This is all, of course, based on the premise that uh, the Liberals win the next election and El Duca becomes the next premier. There are some other bold moves that he's also proposing. It's uh, it's making headlines, uh, but is it resonating with voters and just how practical are some of these things? A lot of questions. Let's uh, get some answers and some analysis on this. Please and welcome back to the program, Mohamed Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Mohamed, hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today. I did. Thank you for having me. Let's, let's it's always incumbent upon the opposition parties here to try to make some noise and and say look it will be different here's something that this government has not attempted to do and we'll do this so I, I guess it's not surprising to hear some what some people might consider to be bold new moves and proposals by Stephen Duca, is it
1: no it's not and, and you said perfectly you know they have to have some bold moves and bold recommendations and suggestions for voters to consider them considering they don't they're the third party their third-party status. They don't have official party status in the, in Queens Park, so they need to go uh, have some very big ideas to reclaim some of that kind of energy that the Liberals used to have. Uh, bring back voters, saying, "You know what? This is not a dead party. They they still have some great great minds behind them, and uh, let's give them a chance, sort to speaking." You know, when we look at uh, the idea of a four-day work week, uh, that's that's gone viral everywhere from, from you know, to radio talk show hosts, to uh, news media, to social media with young people as well. It's, it's gone everywhere.
0: You know, two and a half, three years ago, I guess, Mohammed, if somebody proposed that, they would have said, yeah, right, okay, uh, back to the drawing board. There just didn't seem to be an appetite for it. But do you think the fact that COVID has come along and basically changed our attitudes about where we work and how much we work and, and how we work, that, that maybe there may be more people to be open to an idea like this?
1: 100. percent I think COVID has really redefined how we view work-life balance. Our, where do we put our value in? How much time do we want to commit to? It? I mean, for for most of our lives, work remains one of the, the biggest time-consuming piece of our of our lives. So, uh, to redefine what a work day, what a work week looks like, which has been operating since like the early 1900s when Henry Ford sort of started this concept. Um, so, you know, you're seeing some success in other parts of the world. And even here in Canada, there's a company out in Toronto that adopted a four-day work week and found that the results were quite positive. You know, productivity still was was at bay or has increased. People feel better about themselves, a little bit more time for their mental health and physical health, which are real things that people in COVID have, have identified as, wow, I really need to focus on myself a little bit more than I normally would have.
0: I know we've done some analysis on this, too, because there's a little tiny community just outside of London, as a matter of fact, uh, that's adopting this on a pilot project. And there are some organizations that have already done this. Uh, A number of uh, police services and fire services, emergency services uh, have done this. But it's a lot easier for them to do this than uh, because that's not a standard shift anyway, I suppose. You know, when you talk to some of the folks that organize this, we should mention, by the way. Uh, that the proposal that Mr. Del Duca is talking about, and the one that has been adopted in, in a number of other countries that he's mentioned, uh, you work the same number of hours. If it's a 40-hour work week, you still working 40, but it's compressed into, into four days as opposed to the usual five days. So it's longer shifts or longer time at work, whatever the case might be, for the same amount of money, but you get that extra day off. Um, and and it's, it's I guess it's one of these things that we're thinking, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Uh, that's something that we might consider here, since I think a lot of us are probably, as you mentioned, uh, reassess this work-life balance now in in light of what we've been doing over the last two years.
1: Yeah, and you know what? It's, it's also strategic because
0: um, you know there's a lot of young
1: people who are are having a hard time. You know, often have to work very odd hours, extremely long hours, and so this really can pull them in and of of like redefining what the workplace. You know, the the millennial and even the Gen Zers uh, generations are looking to redefine what does what does work life look like. And this is one way of, of coalescing that, that very important, growing young voter base that um, that they're going to need to recapture. And there are people who are with families who who want to spend more time at home. They realize that they've missed out on a lot when it comes with their kids and such that they didn't didn't get to do before the pandemic when it work was just like I need to work, I need to work, and now it's like well I need to focus on myself. And so. This is a very smart policy uh, recommendation, or, or, or I guess, um, policy platform uh, commitment that the Liberals are, are looking at. And it's gonna be one that that people are gonna be talking about quite a bit. And it's a good positive one that captures an understanding of what happened in the pandemic. We're not looking to go back to normal, we need to find our new normal.
0: And we should also mention, by the way, I think the key word here in Mr. Duca's comments, and uh, we played that clip just before you joined us, Mohammed. As he said, if he the, becomes the premier, he will study this idea and look at the studies. It's not a matter of if, okay, he's going to implement this today after he uh, he wins, if he should win the election. Because uh, it's not for everybody. I mean, there are some organizations that are thinking, hey, this is a pretty good idea. But some organizations can't. Now, I understand, that, as it was explained to me. Uh, the way it works is, I guess, some people work a, a Monday to Thursday shift. Others work a Tuesday to Friday shift. So there's there's always going to be people in the workplace. It's just a matter of whether or not, I guess, you're going to get a Friday off or a Monday off or whatever the case might be. Uh, but if the government decides to move forward on this, there's a key point here I think we need to remember. Uh, they can't mandate that every company or every employer in, this, in the province has to do this. I mean, there are some they say it's not for me but this i guess the first step is if they were to adopt something like this and we're going way down the road here speculation uh it would probably be government workers initially that would be doing this and and kind of go from there
1: yeah it, it, i mean uh to be frank i mean most most sectors still can do however they want it to be right and you know there are people who who are supposed to work 40 hours end up having to work 50 60 hours uh, in a week um Uh, you know, you look at lawyers, doctors and, you know, consultants and and whatnot, like people work different hours and companies can make the determination. And I agree that it would be uh, easier for them to look at some uh, government departments or agencies um, or very closely regulated provincial uh, sectors that they can implement this as a pilot project and then perhaps more more widely. Uh, But I think, you know, folks need someone to lead. Uh, this idea, and often governments have to be the, 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 the horse that pulls the, the wagon in a situation. So, uh, you know, studying it, looking at how a Canadian or Ontario model would look like is important. I mean, Iceland has adopted it, and they've found a lot of success. Uh, you know, seeing in Japan, you're seeing in New Zealand, they're all looking at these models and implementing in different ways. So, so there is a, a strong argument to make that it could work uh, in Ontario.
0: uh, Mohamed Ali, a senior consultant, of course, with Crestview Strategies, talking about some of the things that Stephen Del Duca is proposing. Uh, Mr. Del Duca actually was uh, addressing the uh, Ontario Liberal uh, Annual General Meeting uh, virtually, of course, because of what's been going on over the last little while. There's one other thing that he talked about. Well, a number of initiatives, but another, uh, uh, I I guess, bold move, as we were talking about characterizing them at the beginning, uh, and it's it's boldly going where no politician dare go these days. And it talks about changing the way in which we vote, electoral reform. Uh, you know, it's been talked about, uh, it's been studied. We had a referendum in Ontario a number of years ago. Uh, but Mr. Del Duca is suggesting that if he becomes premier, he's going to move Ontario to a ranked balloting system, as opposed to what we have now, which is called first past the post. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Uh, is there an appetite for that sort of thing these days?
1: You know, I think... Um... You know, there's always been an undercurrent of, of individuals or Canadians and Canadians and people in Ontario who've looked towards an electoral reform to increase the voice of voters uh, on Election Day. Um, so it's not surprising that there, there is still that, that, that base who continues to advocate for it. it. This reminds me of from the, 20, the 2015 federal Liberals who campaigned electoral reform, but this was a bit step f- further. Um, you know, Stephen DeLuca is saying, well, look, well, we'll I'm going to implement ranked ballot one way or another, or I'll resign as premier, as he said. And the other piece to the, to add to that is that he's going to create a citizen assembly to look at further changes to it. So that, that's a bit different than how the federal liberals did in 2015, where they were looking at, look, we're going to strike a, an all party committee and, and that will determine whether we should or should not have, um, electoral reform, what that electoral reform should look like. So, this is a bit of step forward, and so now there's a bit more certainty for those who find who who see electoral reform as a top issue. They have now someone that is committing their basically their premiership on on um, on a ranked ballot being implemented uh, right away as part of their uh, you know in their first mandate. So I think it's uh, an interesting idea uh, to help capture some of that. Ranked ballots are often seen as the Sort of the, the middle ground where folks who are uncomfortable with the idea of electoral reform and those who are very gung ho about it, this is kind of like a middle ground that they have found. And I think it's, it's a strategic play for, for Stephen DeLuca to, uh, to choose ranked ballots as his go to electoral reform piece.
0: I mean, there are a couple of alternatives here. And it's interesting that he chose the rank balloting winning, which, by the way, I don't want to get too deeply into it here, but we've talked about it on the program before. It essentially means you pick a first, second, and third choice. So this is the candidate I'd like to see win, but this is my second and third choice. Uh, And and there's a a calculation that's involved in this. And it's done in many other jurisdictions in Europe. Uh, I believe France is is using this sort of a system on a federal level. Uh, And a number of other jurisdictions over in Europe and in Scandinavia have adopted something like this, too. But there's always this resistance to change. Um, You know, we always say we want change, uh, Mohammed, in in elections, you know, if we're upset with the the governing party. But I I think we usually extrapolate from that. They just want a different face there. They're they're not crazy about changing the system uh, because everything that Del Duca just talked about here was pretty much what the McGinney government tried. You know, they had a citizens panel that made the recommendation, everything like that, too. And it was soundly defeated in a referendum.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's a different time. Um, you know, not not every uh, sort of idea, you know, catapults to, to being a great idea right away. I think it needs to fester and build, you know, to your point, not a lot of people talk about electoral reform and a kind of top three issue. Obviously, top three issues tend to be, you know, climate change, jobs, security, housing, and, and such like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is, um, you know, those like, Peripheral issues that people really coalesce around that seem to capture attention, um, but you know, each of these, a lot of these political parties actually use ranked ballots as part of their leadership elections. Well,
0: uh, that's what the, so that's not, what the conservatives it, did, didn't it?
1: Yeah, and so it's not unusual for um, for political parties to kind of adopt this. You know, municipalities use this. For some municipalities are using this for a while across the country. So uh, there is like some awareness and some idea and ranked ballots aren't a complicated measure. I think when electoral reform is talked about, it, it's usually the very more transformative proportional representation which people are, are you know always concerned about what is representation will look like, what how am I going to vote and such. Whereas ranked ballots are relatively easy like hey just rank your candidates. So it's a little bit more easier to articulate. So it may it may not be one that captures and be considered like oh this is going to solve everything, but it will likely calm some of the uh, the ferocity of, of accuracy that, you know, folks for electoral reform are looking for, uh, but also a way to kind of, you know, slowly slide in for people who are very uncomfortable or unsure saying, okay, well, this is not too bad. I can, I can be okay with this.
0: I got a minute left. I got to ask you about one other key thing too, because I know he touched on it in a speech and Doug Ford uh, is touching on this as well. It's, it's proposed highway 413. Uh, which is going to cost billions and billions of dollars? There's going to be some infringement on the green belt. Uh, Ford is, uh, in many people's minds, banking his re-election on that because that's voter-rich uh, the GTA area. Uh, both the NDP and the Liberals are saying we'll cancel it, expecting that's going to be uh, where they're going to get their support from. I guess that, does this break down into demographics and age groups?
1: In a, a bit, um, you know, one of the challenges for the 905 region is that uh, there. Folks need to have a car almost uh, in places like Brampton, Mississauga, Richmond Hill, Markham, and such, because the the transit systems there don't have enough to do east-west a lot or to integrate with other cities. Uh, so there's a bit of a challenge for people that they can't just rely on taking the bus every day. And and this you know there isn't a lot of transit thinking often goes from re- from regional perspective of how to get to downtown Toronto more efficiently, but there isn't a lot of how can I get from Brampton to Northern Vaughan to Markham, or how do I get to Oakville a bit quicker? You know, just but just before I joined, uh, you know, joined with you here today, you know, there was a traffic update where the QEW, and the 41, are just the regular jam packed all the time. But there hasn't been any new major highway, particularly east-west, has been built. I guess since the 401, really, uh, for that's a toll highway. Yeah, the 407, if you want to talk toll roads, but. That, that, you know, population growth has expanded tremendously and, you know, people are buying cars, you know, incomes keep continuing to rise. So, and people do need them. So how are people supposed to get across? How are businesses who are in the trade kind of sector? Uh, they often look at how close are we to the highway? Let's build there. So there's, you know, the current h- highway capacity is so, um, uh, so strained right now that it's not surprising that people in, in the 905, particularly in Pila region and Halton region and York region are finding it very compelling to not have to sit in a car for an extra 30, 40 minutes when I could probably cut it down because I have a new route I can take to get to my job in, in Markham, or I can get to my job in Brampton that, you know, I'm paid pretty good money with and I don't need to take the bus over, which is going to take me like an hour and a half to two hours. Right. So it's, 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 it's-
0: I just going to say, it's a, it's an interesting idea, and it, we got to leave it there because we're just about out of time on this segment. Uh, and by the way, you brought up the whole idea about toll road. I know that the, the premier was asked about whether or not this new highway would be a toll road, and they uh, did not answer the question. So that, that's another element to this. More to come on this, as they say, Mohammed, Thanks, as always, for this. Great talking with you today. Thanks for having me. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant at Crestview Strategies. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about gasoline prices, which are front and center of everybody's minds these days. If you filled up, uh, different parts of the province are, re- are responding in different ways. But, I mean, you know, we're looking at a, a, a outrageous price for gasoline these days. It's actually not as bad as it is on other European countries. But you don't fill up in European countries. You fill up here in Canada and in Ontario. And that's, that, that's why we're concerned about this. Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation monitors this, too. And they have just released their 23rd annual Gas Tanks Honesty Day report. It shows how much drivers actually pay in taxes at the pumps, and there's uh, well a kind of a call out to uh, not just the prime minister but to Premier Doug Ford about what's happening. Uh, to talk about all this and all the stats here, uh, Jay Goldberg joins us. Jay is the interim Ontario director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Jay, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today.
2: It's great to be with you.
0: Anybody that's uh, that filled up over the last little while saying what the heck is going on, and we've we've talked to some of the economists and. You know, we, we know that the, the world price of oil has gone up and that's having a major impact on this. Uh, and I, I don't want to say there's nothing we can do about that. But I mean, we're a little bit, you know, problematic here to try to get something done. But taxes are something that we can deal with because those are decisions made by the government. Uh, and that's what you're focusing on with, uh, with this report. First of all, maybe just fill our listeners in about uh, the report itself, the Gas Tax Honesty Day report, uh, what that entails and, and what you've been able to discover.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So every year we do an analysis of uh, the price of gas at the pumps and try to figure out and then communicate to Canadians exactly how much you're paying per litre in taxes. Uh, And the reality is that um, for those who filled up this past weekend and paid over $1.40 a litre, 48 cents of every litre is in taxes. So even though the price of oil has gone up, Without any taxes on gasoline, you would still be paying less than a dollar a litre. So I think that really shows uh, taxpayers and those who are frustrated uh, just how impactful government and taxes can be. And I think that's also why people will welcome uh, what Doug Ford suggested last week, which is that he plans to deliver on his campaign commitment to cut the gas tax at the provincial level by 5.7 cents a litre.
0: I want to talk about that in a second. Campaign promises, but you know, a lot of the time, and we've talked with a number of folks in your organization over the years about this. Uh, governments kind of play games when it comes to taxes on gasoline. They used to call it sin taxes—gasoline, tobacco, and 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 uh, alcohol. Uh, but we're focusing on gasoline because, I mean, while well, some people may or may not imbibe in those other things, you're right. If you have a, a vehicle, you got to put gas in it. That's all there is to it. And I know we're trying to move away to other forms of energy, but we're not there yet. Uh, and there's taxes upon taxes on this. I mean, it's it's a it's a windfall for governments when they're looking for revenue, uh, and and the poor taxpayers are kind of getting it. Well, I was going to say getting it in the neck. Now they're getting it in the wallet, I suppose.
2: Absolutely, uh, and we pay about five cents a liter. That's just tax on top of tax. So if you believe it or not, the gas bill, uh, if you actually do an analysis, if you're at the pumps filling up and and you were to break down the price, we pay HST. On top of the gas taxes that were charged so we're charged we're charged uh, in Ontario for example uh, 14.3 cents a liter uh, for what's called the provincial gas excise tax but we are then charged HST on top of that so we're literally paying taxes for paying taxes Uh, and a lot of provinces don't have that Ontario does and that should absolutely be part of the conversation uh, that premier Ford has, uh, and that the federal government has in terms of how we can try to make, uh, traveling in the province more affordable. Because as you said, the reality is we're not quite at the point where everybody can afford, uh, an electric car. We're also, uh, not at the point where everybody's living in downtown Toronto. I mean, some people might, uh, think that, okay, instead of driving to work, we can walk or we can bike, but, uh, you know, if you're living in Timmins and you're trying to uh, get your kids to school and then get to work, you don't have an alternative. And so this really hits hardest on those with lower middle class incomes, seniors on fixed incomes, who simply don't have the extra money to pay all of this
0: tax. And you hit on a key point here, Jay, which I think we want to remind our listeners about is the, the taxes that governments charge on gasoline is, is based on that number. In other words, if, the, if that number goes up, their income goes up, it's a percentage. They don't say it's gonna be so many cents per liter, but necessarily, it's a percentage of this. So uh, in other words, you look at what's happened now with the world price of oil, and that's, as you mentioned, that's been a factor in, in, in fuel prices going up globally all over the world. But that means that the governments make more tax from it because that's, that, that higher price is what the, you're paying the tax on right now. So it's, it's a little hypocritical for them to say, yeah, we're really worried about this because their coffers they are filling quite nicely, thank you very much, thanks to these higher gasoline prices.
2: Absolutely. And if you look at uh, Ontario, I mean, thankfully, I, I certainly don't want to complain that the deficit for last year came in lower than forecast. That's a great thing for taxpayers. But if you look at the revenue gains that the Ontario government had, there was significant revenue gains from gas tax uh, income. And uh, so it's it's very clear, even if you're just looking at what uh, the four government forecast a year ago to what they're suggesting is is The reality today, they're getting more gas tax revenue, as you said, because with higher prices, the percentage of tax that's charged, uh, the dollar amount goes up. Uh, And so that's extra money in the in the wallets of uh, the the Premier Ford at the Queen's Park. That's also extra money uh, for Justin Trudeau at the federal level. And actually, gas taxes are higher at the federal level than the provincial level. So that's going to be significantly more revenue for the Trudeau government as well.
0: Well, based on history, I'll, I'll let our listeners in on a little something. Uh, expect pretty soon to have an announcement from, from the finance here in Ontario, Mr. Beth and, and also from Christian Freeland, saying, hey, our deficit, and our, it's not as bad as we thought. Well, this is because the price of gas has just gone up. And, and right now, the money's just flowing in from the gas tax. And they're going to apply that and say, see, we're, we're much more you know, economically viable than we thought we were. We're doing such a good job managing the economy uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's the price of oil that's caused all of this to happen and they're getting pretty rich on this. Uh, so, and that, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just something I think our listeners just have to understand that, uh, the governments are, are talking kind of out of both sides of their mouth when they say we want to do something to help consumers. But on the other hand, they're loving the fact that the money's coming in like that because it makes them look good. But Doug Ford did make a promise. And I'll, I'll go back to the last provincial election here, Jay. Uh, And we all remember the promise he was going to drop the price of gasoline by 10 cents a liter. Well, he didn't really get around to that. I guess we found out later on that his his strategy was essentially to kill the uh, cap and trade program and hopefully to defeat the carbon tax program in court. Well, he killed the cap and trade, but the carbon tax, uh, he'd lost that case. And and he's blaming them on this. Uh, And now he's come up with another idea. And I wanted to get your read on this. And I'm sure you saw this over the last couple of days. Uh, the premier is saying that he will reduce the provincial portion of tax, but only if Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals reduce it. He says, I'll match it by pe- every penny. Um, it's it's kind of a hollow promise because we all know that the federal liberals are not going to drop the, their, their tax on gasoline.
2: Uh, no, it certainly doesn't look like they will. Doug Ford kind of took two positions at that press conference. On the one hand, he did definitely say that... Um, You know, he would lower the gas tax here in Ontario if the Feds lower the gas tax, which is not going to happen because the Feds are actually, you know, hiking the carbon tax every year. So that's certainly not going to happen. Uh, But when he was pushed even further, uh, he did say something to the effect of, I keep my promises, promises made, promises kept. So, uh, you know, that's a bit of a shady language there. We'll see. Uh, We certainly expect that... uh, At least in the taxpayers' federation, our position is that Premier Ford ought to keep his promise to voters, uh, regardless of what the federal government's going to do, because the premier can help drivers and taxpayers all across the province, even if the federal government won't. And so what we should see, and the best thing to see, would be Doug Ford honour his promise to lower the gas tax by 5.7 cents a litre, That would save someone filling up their minivan once a week. That'll save them $200 a year. And then on top of that, the Ford government should promise to reduce gas taxes uh, at the same amount that the feds do. So he should keep his original promise and still challenge the federal government to go further. We know that the federal government's not going to go further, so we at least want to see him keep his
0: own promise. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, whether you like it or, or don't like it. Uh, the carbon tax program is there. Uh, you know, the Liberals got reelected and, and so there's no way they're going to change that. Uh, there have been a number of surveys that have done that say the majority of Canadians support some support of carbon tax. They may not necessarily agree with this one, uh, but some form, even Aaron O'Toole proposed something along the lines, although it was a rather muddled idea of this. So, so, but that's the new here and there because he's not the prime minister right now. Prime Minister Trudeau is. Uh, so that's not going anywhere. And uh, it would be well counterproductive for the liberals to say okay we want to maintain this and we're going to charge more because uh, this is their their layout plan for the carbon tax Uh, they're not going to reduce that because that's going to screw all their uh, their calculations up uh so it is what it is so i mean if the premier is bound and bent that he's going to reduce it he doesn't need the prime minister's approval he doesn't need the feds to do it he can do it on his own can't he
2: yes he absolutely can and that's what we'd like to see before the next election as Doug Ford said, uh, he he said he's a man who keeps his promises. He said promises made, promises kept. Well, he has kept some promises since the last election. That's certainly true. But one of the big promises was this gas tax cut. And now that Ontario drivers are facing the highest gas prices in the history of the province, and part of that has to do with the federal carbon tax, which is 8.8 cents a litre. Um, but as drivers are struggling and taxpayers are struggling... We absolutely need to see the Ford government act. And you're right, if for some reason he's trying to avoid keeping his commitment by just challenging the federal government to do something, that's not going to happen. And I don't think that people in Ontario should for a minute, um, you know, kind of let the premier uh, just simply say he'll only cut the tax if the feds do, because that's an automatic no, that's not going to happen. And so absolutely, those two situations need to be decoupled. The feds can do uh, you know, they're going to keep implementing what they want to do. They're going to keep hy- hiking the carbon tax every year, which is going to drive gas prices up past a eighty a litre by 2030. But Ford can help us now. He can do it tomorrow. He could do it in the fall economic statement. He could do it in the winter budget. And that is cut the gas tax, keep his promises, and then he can genuinely go to voters next spring and say promise made, promise kept.
0: And, and that's the essence i know of what, of what uh, the taxpayers federation is talking about here right now um is, is you know the liberals are going to do the federal government whichever government it is but for the time being it's going to be the, the liberals in the minority government they're going to do what they're going to do and the canadian voters will, will you know they'll assess that and they'll make their judgment on that as they had in the last election and as they will in the next election uh, but there's a provincial election coming up, and and uh, I think your point is well taken, and I applaud the Taxpayers Federation for coming out and saying this, is, Mr. Ford, you don't need to do this. And, you know, forget about what the feds do. That They're going to do what they're going to do. What are you doing for Ontario? Uh, because, you know, I, people need to understand, as, as you just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it's different in other provinces. He has the ability to simply say, I'm going to do things differently. Uh, This is the way we've been paying gas tax and and provincial tax on gasoline here in Ontario for quite some time right now. But he could change that with the flip of a pen if he wanted to.
2: Absolutely. And I think that it's even more incumbent on the Premier to do so because this was a promise he made to voters in the last election. Uh, Just three short years ago, he committed to lower gas prices. And yes, at the federal level, the Liberals have been elected promising a carbon tax, but... Uh, The Ford progressive conservatives won a strong majority government with one of their key promises being to lower gas prices by 10 cents a liter. And so I think if any government wants to have credibility when they're running for re-election, they really ought to implement at least some or a good portion of the commitments they've made to voters. Uh, You know, if Ford wants to run in the next election uh, saying, I've kept my promises, this is one of the really big promises that he made. Uh, This is a big promise that would deliver relief to drivers right away. And this is a big promise that, um, you know, is is one of the top three things he was talking about in the last election. And high gas prices at that time really resonated with voters. It was a populist appeal to taxpayers. I think it hit home for a lot of people. Yes, people want to perhaps do things to uh, help fight climate change. On the other hand, um, you know, if people can't put food on the table because gas prices are so high, that's a huge problem. And Ford recognized that. He spoke to Ontario families. He made his promise. And I don't think it would be wise to go into the next provincial election uh, saying, I haven't kept my promise on gas taxes. And as well, he hasn't yet kept his promise on cutting the income tax for the second bracket. So there's a lot he still has to do. This would be an easy win for him. And I would strongly encourage the provincial government to take the win.
0: Well, we've been studying this over the years, and I know you guys at the Taxpayers Federation are doing this too. And this is, I guess what they classify as, as pocketbook issues, isn't it? I mean, yes, certainly we're concerned about the environment and we, we wanna see just what government, whether it's provincial or federal, has a plan for, for environment and for climate change and things of this nature. But we're also, as consumers, we're also concerned about how is this gonna affect my family, my quality of life? You know, uh, can I get a house? Can I afford to keep the house? Can I pay the mortgage? Can I buy groceries? Uh, Can I drive to and from work? Because we don't have enough public transit, uh, as some other jurisdictions here do. Uh, And governments need to balance that, don't they, Jay, to say, yeah, we can promise you this, this and this. But if it's going to have a negative impact on what we call those pocketbook issues, uh, that government's got a problem.
2: Absolutely. And um You know, the carbon tax, it's been in place in uh, British Columbia for over a decade. Their emissions are still going up. So we could certainly have a conversation about whether or not the carbon tax is effective. Uh, It certainly doesn't seem like it's effective. It it really hasn't done all that much to reduce our emissions. Uh, But absolutely, people have to have a quality of life. They have to be able to live. They have to be able to get to work. Uh, And, you know, it's just a reality in a country like we have here in Canada that people are going to have to drive to get places. And, you know, for those who suggest that, well, you know, high gas prices really aren't a big problem, uh, you know, maybe they're living in downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto. Uh, They walk to work, they bike to work, they work from home, they don't have a car. But for millions of families all across this province, they need their cars to drive their kids to school. They need their cars to drive to work. They need their cars to go get groceries. And so, you know, these are essential things. This is not a question of Uh, you know, a luxury that people can do without if they want to. Uh, And until electric cars are as affordable to have for uh, drivers as, you know, cars that are currently on the road, uh, families won't be able to uh, make that transition. And so, you know, the technology is not quite there yet, and we cannot be gouging Canadian taxpayers uh, for doing something that they simply have to do to get by day-to-day in life.
0: So the takeaway here, and I appreciate your time today for the taxpayers' Federation, is uh, you know the carbon tax is what it is, but it's a federal program. And, and Mr. Ford, stop harping about the carbon tax because it's it's beyond your control. The courts have already said that. You made a promise, follow through on the promise. Do what you can do provincially, and and let the chips fall about all the other stuff. And and hopefully the premier will uh, will listen to this message here because I know an awful lot of people that you've just described. Uh, are waiting to see just exactly what he's going to do about this, uh, Jay. Always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the uh, the great work that you're doing with the uh, Federation, and thanks for taking some time for us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Enjoy the day. You betcha. Jay Goldberg who's the interim Ontario director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and that's uh, it's turning the, the what the tables on onto the premier, simply saying, look, you know, put your your money where the mouth is. You know, you you promised about this, you haven't de- delivered on that promise. Forget about what the feds are doing. We already know that the, the Canadian people have already issued their judgment about the federal government so move on what are you going to do mr ford here in ontario what are you going to do and you don't need the federal government's plan or assistance to do that you can do this on your own and people are waiting and watching to see what's going to happen as we've talked about many times don't when it comes to politicians don't listen to what they say watch what they do you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml are you uh, fed up with social media have you had enough there's a lot of talk about that going on right now, especially in light of some of the allegations against Facebook over the last little while and Instagram, of course, and, well, their cousins, uh, and Twitter. It's gone on and on. Uh, and a number of experts are weighing in on this. Dr. Shannon McDonald is Associate Professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Waterloo. Uh, says that we have to have these conversations with ourselves when it comes to social media.
2: How much am I using it? Why am I using it? When do I pick it up? Is it when I'm bored? Is it when I'm anxious? Does it help mm. <laughs> when I'm bored or anxious? Um, are there other things I could be doing? Is there certain places I want to limit my exposure because you know the conversation is too divisive or unpleasant? There's lots of conversations we can be having with ourselves um, to kind of have a, a better experience of the Internet.
0: Well, are we having those conversations with ourselves? I mean, some people have just said, that's it. I've had enough. A number of celebrities have actually weighed in on this. So what is going on? Is there a revolt against social media? Joining us to talk about this is Taro Carpi, who is an associate professor with the Institute of Communication, Culture, and Information and Technology at the University of Toronto. Uh, uh, professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Well, thanks for inviting me. We've seen the pushback on this, especially at Facebook, because of some of the allegations uh, about the content and, and, frankly, Mr. Zuckerberg's attitude towards some of the uh, uh, criticisms about this right now. Is 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 there a, a move right now to simply say, hey, maybe this is the monster that we never saw coming and we, we need to do something about it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think clearly there is, and there has been, like, for, I don't know, I guess as long as we've had Facebook, there has been criticism, but I think it ha- it's now kind of like finding a high point. And I mean, I think this criticism was very much starting actually uh, before the pandemic. And I think people were kind of like at that point, very critical towards social media connectivity. But then the pandemic hit, and, you know, the physical distancing happened and we were basically forced to start using online platforms. So I think the criticism kind of like disappeared for a while, but now it seems to be emerging again, really heavily.
0: What started the one a few years ago? Because I know you've studied this extensively. I mean, there was some pushback, remember, about Facebook. I guess it was about seven, eight years ago. Uh, and again, some celebrity, Jim Carrey was one of the more prominent ones who weighed in and said, That's it. Everybody get off Facebook. It's bad for you. I, I know we talked about uh, some of the content that they would allow in, uh, the misinformation that they would allow in, especially uh, from foreign entities when it came to try to influence elections and things of this nature. Uh, and it, it sh- I think, really shone a, a different light on, on, on social media than we probably had shone on it before. I think I think maybe opened our eyes to it.
3: Yeah, I mean I think so. Like I mean I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal was a was a really really big thing where they were kind of like saying that they can use Facebook data to influence people's um political decision making and then kinda like people started to think about like what kind of data do I give to Facebook every day when I like you know I mean when I'm using it just like for fun, looking at cat pictures or listening to songs or, or stuff like that like what can actually be done with that data so I think it's kind of like we started to kind of like understand that we are giving out data for the companies about our personal lives and there might be actors who are interested in that data and interested in using it for different kinds of purposes so so I think that's it kind of like we are we are becoming more more and more aware of what the platform is doing to us and how it is is kind of like exploiting our our personal interests. But I guess it's also, I mean, it's, it's also, I think the other side here is that Facebook is and has become like super large and it's no longer that trendy. I think it's also kind of like trendy to, to criticize the platform. It's an easy target at this, this point
0: professor were we naive when we all jumped on and everybody jumped on and you know, I can remember the, those early days of you know people say I got to get friends you know it's a status thing if I have more friends than you then I'm more popular uh, and you didn't really care who they were as long as you just wanted that number to go up and and and, and it, a, to your point about personal information uh, a lot of us gave them just about everything they asked for our age our employment our status uh, our likes our dislikes all of this stuff and and there was I everybody I talked to at that time to be of the opinion that well oh, it's okay nobody's going to see that it's just you know me and my friends are going to be able to share that nobody else and then of course comes the revelation wait a second they're selling all that information uh did and and that created what a sense of betrayal that, that you know this platform that we had fallen in love with all of a sudden was was using us
3: um i mean yeah i think we we kind of like we i mean i i mean it's an interesting thing because i don't think. In, that even these companies and their their kind of like designers knew how big they would become in the beginning Mm -hmm. so so i think like it's we kind of like have to kind of like remember that it's a relatively new thing and it started from a very small idea like a university network that then spread all over the world and and has become huge so so i think i think it has kind of like the platform we must kind of like remember that the platform has evolved as well like they at some point they started to think about more 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 clearly like how can we kind of like monetize this group of users like how can we make money out of this this platform that we have generated so 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 yeah i mean it's it's i think we were naive in a sense but there's always kind of like certain kind of a naivety when we are faced with a new interesting technology and we start using it and we don't necessarily think about the consequences but it might also be impossible to know the consequences of using that platform or whatever new technology that is so all new technologies kind of like have this this potential or many new technologies have this kind of like potential risk scenarios like we don't know what actually happens in 10 years in 20 years and so on.
0: Yeah, I, I'd like to believe. I, I I agree with your point. I don't think Zuckerberg and his and his friends thought, "Hey, you know, we're going to develop this platform and, and we're going to get all this information. And we're going to sell it to whoever wants it. We're going to get rich." Uh, I don't think that was the attitude at all. But as I think your the, your other point though is, as it grew. Uh, somebody saw the potential and said, hey, you know what we could do here. Uh, and, and that sent them down that road. I, I don't think it was initially what part of their plan, uh, but they certainly became aware of the fact that it's a, it's a way to make money. And, and they've certainly done that uh, it, in, in such a big, big way. Uh, but sometimes things can get so big and that, that big rock can start rolling down the hill and you can't stop it. I think we're at that point now, aren't we?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think so. And and these companies know it. I think they clearly kinda like have an idea that at some point users are going to leave. And then that's kinda like that's also kinda like has been the point of my research to kinda like try to understand like, okay, what happens then? Like how do they respond to this this kind of like threat or acknowledgement that hey our platform might not be in the future, the most interesting or the one that engages the users the best. So, so that's kind of like maybe drives their product development as well. And they are thinking about kind of like in advance what to do um, to keep the users uh, uh, using their platform and how to kind of like, engage them. And I think, I mean, I, I don't know what Facebook is doing. I'm thinking about so so for me, it's, it's always interesting to differentiate between Facebook, the company and Facebook, the platform. So, so now we kind of like see that Instagram is like super popular, um, people are using WhatsApp and so on. So they are using the products of that company, the platform itself. Um, it's no longer the only thing that Facebook offers for its users.
0: We were glad to see this obviously we embraced it and we embraced every other one that you talked about i mean facebook and, and twitter and instagram uh, whatsapp and, and on and on it goes i mean because we i think we, we were looking for something like that we were looking for that communication uh, and that uh, frankly a, a platform for us to express our feelings and, and emotions about a number of different things so that's great are we more wary of it now because uh, our eyes are a little more open are we concerned about this uh and and is you know is is that why we're hearing at least anyway so many people saying that's it i'm I'm getting out
3: yeah i think so i think we are more aware of these platforms and and also the fact that we don't know exactly what these platforms and social media sites are doing like how they are using our data so they are kind of like these mysterious entities and then we get these kind of like different kinds of whistleblower reports from the inside of the company where people are kind of like telling us that hey um, these is these are the things that the company are doing these are the things they have been designing so we get more and more information of how these platforms work and then we also see kind of like nation states um discussions like a political discussion where people are talking about the regulation of these platforms and 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 i think it's 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 a it's a trend that we see and i think we are in an in a very interesting point of the kind of like the development of social media and social media business and and it's interesting to see where this goes, like, do we just keep on hearing this resistance, but people still keep on using these platforms, or will there actually be some kind of a radical change where we switch to different platforms, or maybe, I don't know, like, it's, it's hard to know, like, what happens, maybe regulation steps in or something like that.
0: Is, is that where we're heading on this? I mean both governments and here in North America, American and Canadian governments, have had hearings into this and, and they're, they're making noises about regulation, uh, and I think often times when when you read some of the comments of some of those elected officials, uh, Professor, uh, they're really basing it on, on old communication systems, and uh, you know, radio, television, uh, print journalism, things of this nature, are uh, usually regulated because they usually there's a license involved in something, especially using public airways like this. The internet is different. Uh, it's it, it, can you regulate this? I mean, can you actually set rules and regulations, and can you enforce those uh, on a social media platform?
3: I mean, that's a that's a very good question, and I don't actually have. I don't think the professional capacity to even hear and speak about that. I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's technically even possible. And we also kind of like know that these companies are also responding to the criticism constantly and they are changing Mm -hmm. their, their own own ways. So, so it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's, interesting to see like what happens as i said
0: well and i don't know what governments can or cannot do in a situation like that as i say I there's probably some political capital gained by making noises like you're going to do this but uh, i i would think like any other entity whether it's you know you're selling a platform like this or you're you're selling you know soft drinks or whatever uh, the public ultimately determines that don't they professor if they don't like the product or don't like it anymore uh, they will either leave or demand changes. And, and, you know, when revenues go down and people start to see reduced subscriptions, uh, that's when they tend to react and say, maybe we have to alter our program. Maybe we have to alter our product.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I think the individual user has some power here kind of like to decide which platforms they are using and how they are using it and and whether or not it's a good idea to, for example, tie the advertising of your small business with, with Facebook's platform or do you have to kind of like figure out what else is there but but these are all kind of like yeah that's that's true so these are complicated questions i think especially because these platforms have grown so large i think that's that's the issue that, that they are so big that one like one user leaving doesn't necessarily leave a huge trace not even like 100,000 users leaving so um so so um yeah i don't know like i think people are definitely more kind of like conscious of their own social media use and they're, they are more conscious of like which platform they're using, what platform they are kind of like selecting and what kind of content they are um, sending or posting on on which of the platforms. So I think people are also kind of like diversifying their their social media use.
0: Well, what do you, how do you handle those people though? And, and how do these people respond to that, Professor? Uh, those that doubt do harbor some sense of, of trepidation about going in here and, the, you know, they're a little more wary of it now because of some of the things that have been said and done about, uh, these platforms. Uh, do they back off? Do they use it less now? Do they say, God, I used to be on Facebook for 68 hours a day. Maybe I better cut back. Maybe I'll get back to one hour. And, and if that's the decision they make, how difficult is that?
3: Um, I mean, I think so. I think people are more, um, aware. And even these platforms are kind of like giving the users a choice to kind of like control their privacy settings more. And they are kind of like, I'm, I'm thinking about Apple who tells me my screen time from screen time from from the previous video, yeah. which helps me to kind of like monitor how much am i actually using it so so these platforms also kind of like want to control how we control our own use they want to show they want to kind of like be the ones who kind of like say that this is maybe the the healthy amount of use of social media and so i think there are like the platforms give users options how to control their own own social media use people are inventing their own ways of restricting social media use like i mean i personally um, I'm, uh, uh, I own most of the social media sites, I guess, but I, I don't have any of the notifications on, on my phone, so I don't see them. I don't constantly see how many retweets my, my, my tweet gets or or who posts me on Messenger. So I kind of like consciously know that I don't want to be looking at the phone all the time and getting those beeps and, and sounds that tell me that there's a new message somewhere there.
0: We, you mentioned about the, the one that happened a few years ago when there seemed to be some criticism about uh, these platforms, especially Facebook, and we, number, we mentioned a number of high-profile people just bailed out and encouraged others to do that too, and there was apparently a dip in subscriptions. Uh, it seems to be happening again, you know, when people like uh, Keanu Reeves and, and Kira Knightley and, and, and Ryan Gosling and others uh, are dumping out and saying, look, you guys should get off the platform as well. Uh, is just a, this going to be another blip, or is there a trend developing here that, that the platform should be concerned about?
3: I mean, I mean, I think this point is also very interesting because, I mean, already in 2012, I think Laura Portwood Stager did this research project, which was about people leaving social media sites like like Facebook, and and her point is that you have to have a lot of social capital to actually disconnect. Like you, it's it's very hard to leave if all your friendships, or or, or interactions with your friends happen on these platforms, or or if, if your business is relying on this platform so you have to have kind of like this social capital um to be able to even consider quitting social media so I guess what we should kind of like ask ourselves is like how tied is our live lives like our personal lives with these platforms like is it possible to consider leaving or what will we miss if if we will leave and if the answer is that we won't miss much that we can, um replace these connections some through some other means then i think we'll see people doing that like they will figure out a way to um to do the same same connections without these particular social media platforms but i do have to say that i am skeptical i think social media sites are here to stay and it's very hard to not to be part of this this new media culture
0: <laughs> Uh, I, on that note, we're going to have to leave it. I think that profound statement, I think, says it all. Uh, professor, pleasure having you on the program today. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's a Professor Theric Harpy, a Associate Professor at the University of Toronto, studying social media and the impact it's having on our lives. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.